0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, for the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in kindle on them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created. Let us pray, O oh God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful, by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in that same spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in this consolation, through Christ our Lord. Word of God, form our words. Spirit of God, inflame our hearts. God, our enlightenment, holy guardian angels, strengthen the lights of our minds. Order and illumine our images and arouse us to consider more correctly. Mary, seed of wisdom, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, angelic doctor, pray for us. St. Agnes, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. May God bless you all for coming out on Sunday evening to um, listen to this parish mission. Um, You'll notice as I talk, I have a very great devotion to St. Thomas Aquinas. You see our lovely Dominican sisters there. And uh, St. Thomas, you might know, had a very great devotion to St. Agnes. In fact, he said that all of his wisdom, he got through the intercession of St. Agnes. Isn't that interesting? He carried not one, but two relics of her with him constantly. And every year, because he was a, uh, a teacher at the University of Paris as part of his official position, he was a master of theology there. He received one gold ducat per month for his salary, which of course as a Dominican, he couldn't keep because it was, uh, he had a vow of poverty but he asked his superior if he could put it all into a fund. And at the end of the year, each year on the feast of St. Agnes, he would throw a huge party for the whole school with all his 12 gold ducats, which was a lot of money. It would have been like, you know, $20,000. He's this huge party in honor of St. Agnes every year. So I think St. Thomas would be very happy uh, to be referenced here in the church of St. Agnes. Another interesting connection between this church and the, the Norbertine order, of which I'm a member, is that this church is modeled after Norbertine abbey. It's Abbey Schlegel in Austria. And i have been there before, I stayed there for a few days and uh, uh, towards the end of my time living in Rome. And so um, one of our priests from our abbey father, Norbert, who used to be Jeffrey Wood, he came from this parish maybe 40 something years ago, he came to our abbey. Um, and abbott parker our founding abbot he came here and spoke on a number of occasions he was friends with monsignor schuler all right <clears throat> i asked father moriarty to the title this lenten series as lent without regrets and the way i'm hoping to make your lent less regretful is to make it more joyful and lent above all seasons could be considered a season of the beatitudes if you think about the different beatitudes that jesus lists a lot of them sound a lot like lent blessed are the poor blessed are those who hunger and thirst blessed are those who mourn (laughs) right this all sounds like the sort of things that we would be doing in the middle of lent huh blessed are the pure of heart trying to purify our appetites and desires So, Lent in a special way is a season of the Beatitudes, and so in these reflections over the coming days, I'm going to talk about the Beatitudes and especially how they can inform our practice of the season of Lent. Now if you're like me, the first time you ever took the trouble to learn the Beatitudes was a list that you had to memorize in Catechism class. You're afraid the bishop might ask you, what are the Beatitudes? And so you had them memorized, but soon to be forgotten. But my hope is that as you read or listen, I'm sorry, to these conferences and meditate on the Beatitudes, that you'll see that Beatitudes were at the very heart of the gospel. And in fact, I would make the contention the Beatitudes are as important to the teachings of Jesus Christ as the Ten Commandments were in the teaching of Moses. Just as the Ten Commandments were the heart of the Mosaic Law, so also the Beatitudes of our Lord are at the heart of our Lord's moral doctrine, the heart of the new law. Now, Beatitude is just a fancy name for happiness. But I want to explain that a little bit. It's not just any happiness, it's not emotional satisfaction or some kind of just being pleased. The Greek word that's used in scripture and the Beatitudes listed by both St. Matthew and St. Luke is makarioi. And that same word appears about just over 50 times in the Old Testament and the Greek Septuagint and about 50, a little over 50 times in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, it is used to describe the happiness of God and also the happiness of Christ in heaven. So we're not just talking about a merely human happiness. We're talking about a blessedness, a beatitude, which is like unto the very happiness, the blessedness of God, which is why they're often translated blessed or the, the persecuted blessed or the poor because they're trying to communicate this idea of a divine joy a truly divine and lasting happiness when our lady blesses god in her magnificat she uses this very word now this kind of happiness is the meaning of life it's the ultimate goal and reason for our existence but sometimes we can lose sight of this fundamental fact our search for happiness is very often like the air we breathe We don't actually ask ourselves the question, is this gonna make me happy? We just live our lives implicitly seeking happiness, but not always being aware of the connection between our specific concrete actions and whether or not they're making us happy. So someone, for example, might spend all their life working and working for money. Um, I knew one man, I used to work at a law firm years before I became a priest, And I remember this one man, if I went to the office at six in the morning, he was already there working. If I left at 10 at night, he was still there working, no matter what day I came in. He worked and he worked because he loved money. And he somehow was convinced that having more money would bring him happiness, right? But perhaps, likely, without ever asking the question, does money make me happy? Will it make me happy? So, when I teach ethics, especially to high school students, I try to teach them this lesson by asking them a series of questions. And usually the dialogue is something like this. Why are you sitting in my class right now? Because I want to get a good good grade, Father. Why do you want to get a good grade? Because I want to get into a good college, Father. Why do you want to get into a good college? Because I want to get a good job, Father. Why do you want a good job? Because I want to make lots of money, Father. Why do you want to make lots of money?" And that's when they get frustrated, like looking at me, like, everyone wants a lot of money. What do you mean, why do I want to make lots of money? And I say, I don't want lots of money. How about poverty? Why do you want lots of money? Because it'll make me happy. Oh, there, there's the answer to all your questions. You're looking for happiness. We'll see whether or not money makes you happy. But at least you know what you're looking for in name. The question is, what is it consistent in, in reality? So then I often ask them the question. <laughs> this really frustrates them, but it makes them good students. Can anyone in this room define happiness for me? And then crickets. <laughs> and I say to them, well, that's strange. You admit the ultimate purpose of your life, the reason for everything you're doing is happiness, and you have no idea what it is. Wouldn't that be like setting off on a road trip for Kalamazoo but having no idea where it is? I think that's a bad idea, don't you? Why don't we learn some ethics together so you can figure out where you're going, and then they're on board, you know? Well, the answer to the question, what is happiness, is given by Jesus in the Beatitudes. And Jesus is someone uniquely qualified to answer that question. He's the only one that's come down from heaven. He's the only one who knows really where happiness is found and the way to happiness. So the necessity of following Jesus is simply from the fact that he's the only one who really knows. God made the human heart, he knows how it works. But this necessity is made even more urgent by the fact that the human heart is counterintuitive. <clears throat> it works the opposite way than you think it's going to work. And a sign of that is that most people don't find happiness. They're searching after the same things, money, pleasure, power, wealth, fame, the esteem of men. They search, they search, they search, and yet they don't find happiness. So it shows you the human heart is counterintuitive the prophet Jeremiah says more tortuous than all else is a human heart beyond remedy who can understand it I alone probe the mind and test the heart says the Lord only God knows how your heart works how it's supposed to work some years ago I read an interesting news story it was about a discovery that had been made Actually, the discovery had been made over 100 years before. There was a shipwreck off the coast of Greece, and they were able to locate it about the turn of the last century, about 1900. And up with the sort of things they found in this ancient Greek vessel, which they were able to date back to the first century BC, was a shoebox-shaped and sized device that was obviously very complicated, had all sorts of gears and mechanisms and levers and they didn't know what it was. Nothing of comparable complexity had existed, you know, in the West until the 14th or 15th century after the um, fall of Rome. And so scientists were intrigued, but it was so covered with rust and brine and been down in the bottom of the ocean for almost two millennia, they didn't know what to do with it. So I read this news story because they had had modern x-ray technology where they're able to actually take layer by layer and x-ray this thing. And they were able to reconstruct the entire thing from scratch. and called it the Antikythera device. Look it up, it's really fascinating. What they found out was it was an astronomical clock. And it came complete with instructions, like there's actually Greek letters inscribed in all the gears saying where to go, where they put them, and so forth. It could predict accurately the positions of the planets and the sun and the moon, solar eclipses, thousands of years in advance. Perfectly accurately. Nothing comparable had been seen in the West until maybe the 16th century. Isn't that amazing? But because it had gone down in that shipwreck, it took scientists 100 years to figure out how it worked. And something like that happened with us. We heard in today's first reading, the book of Genesis. At the dawn of human history, there was a shipwreck. And among the treasures that went down with the ship was a human heart. And after all those millennia, the brine, the rust of our personal sins, it's so hard to figure out how the human heart works. And so Jesus is giving us that instruction manual, teaching us, here's how your heart works. Let's consider the Beatitudes as they're found here in scripture. told in St. Matthew's Gospel, the great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The places more or less correspond to the boundaries of the promised land, parceled out by Moses to the twelve tribes of Israel. So the implication is that there are representatives of all the tribes of Israel present at Jesus' preaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And then it says that when the people sat down, Jesus went up on the mountain. And that's a direct quote, word for word in the Greek of Exodus 19.3, where it says that Moses went up the mountain. And what's interesting about it is the use of the definite article, the. Um, You'll notice if you talk to someone from other languages, for example, from an Asian language, they don't exactly know how to use definite articles. If they came here as an adult, it's hard to figure out. English, we use definite articles all the time. But a lot of languages don't use those definite articles all the time. And in Greek, you would not be using the definite article except for a couple specific cases. You would use the definite article saying, the mountain, If you're referring to a mountain that you already talked about in the text, but if you didn't have a mountain you were talking about in the text, you just would say, Jesus went up mountain. That's what you would say if the first time you bring it up. Here in St. Matthew's text though, there's no mountain that's mentioned before, the Sermon on the Mount. So you would expect him to say, Jesus went up mountain. But the Greek says he went up the mountain. Well, there's one other reason why he would use a definite article in the Greek. And that is because you would use a definite article in order to signify that this was the instance par excellence of the thing you're talking about. Like in English, we'll sometimes say, he's the man, right? That's the one. So, St. Matthew is teaching us that Jesus went up the mountain, and any first century Jew reading that text in the Greek immediately would make the connection with Mount Sinai. Because that is the mountain par excellence for Jewish people. So St. Matthew is drawing the connection, representatives of all the members of the 12 tribes of Israel, Jesus going up the mountain, just like Moses sitting down and preaching and giving his list of these great commandments, these Beatitudes. So it's clear that St. Matthew is drawing a parallel between Moses and his receiving the Ten Commandments on Sinai and Jesus's ten or eight Beatitudes. But notice this, the difference between a commandment and a Beatitude. A commandment is a thou shalt or thou shalt not do something. It's basically telling you from the outside, you'd better do this or else. But a beatitude isn't so much pushing us from the outside, it's pulling us from within. Happy shall you be if you do this. And just as in the old law, people were motivated by the fear of punishment, so too Jesus wanted in the new law for men to be attracted by the love of God and the happiness the human heart so longs for. So you see, even the mode of presenting the Beatitudes is more perfect. As Jesus himself said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. He won't compel, he won't force, he won't threaten. He'll draw all men to himself in love. And that is how the Beatitudes presented to us. Now I want to say one more thing before I actually read the text of St. Matthew and that is that the Beatitudes are presented in two different places as is the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospels. The famous place that we're all familiar with is Matthew chapter 5 Five through seven is the whole Sermon on the Mount. But Luke chapter six also contains an abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount. And it also includes an abbreviated version of the Beatitudes. So Luke has four Beatitudes. Matthew has eight. Uh But there's also another marked difference between Luke's Beatitudes and Matthew's. Luke's Beatitudes are a lot more concrete, shall we say, and less nuanced. In Luke, he says, blessed are you poor. Doesn't say poor in spirit, he doesn't qualify it or give a nuance. Or again, he says, blessed are you who hunger and thirst. Blessed are you who mourn. He doesn't say for righteousness, right? He's not nuancing things, it seems. And so what's the reason for that? What's the reason why you've got these two different presentations of the Beatitudes, number one, and why Jesus is so kind of concrete in Luke, whereas in Matthew, he seems to be a little bit more abstract or at least a little bit more universal in his presentation. And I think the reason is the following, St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, they both noticed this, that The setting of the Sermon on the Mount according to St. Luke and the Beatitudes is on the plain and it says he was there with the crowds. And so when Luke is reporting the Beatitudes, he's reporting specifically the Beatitudes that were preached to the whole people, the crowds on the side of the mountain. But Matthew's Gospel says that Jesus saw the crowds, went up the mountain, and only his disciples came to him. So St. Augustine, St. Thomas, they conclude, there were two sermons. One was given to the whole crowds of the people, the whole mass of people. The other one was given only to the disciples and therefore was a little bit more lofty and a little bit more universal and detailed. So that explains the differences. But another thing that explains the differences is this. Whereas Matthew says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, or blessed are those who are poor, the poor. Luke says, blessed are you. And he just says, you poor, you who are mourning, you who are hungering and thirsting. And the reason's quite simple. The people Jesus was talking to in Luke's gospel had been following him for days. They were hungry and thirsty. They were poor. And yet they preferred to hear Jesus preach than even to eat or to drink. So Jesus already knew what was in their heart. He didn't have to qualify and say, you poor of spirit or you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He knew they were already poor in spirit. He knew that they were hungry and thirsting for righteousness because they were making these great sacrifices, bodily sacrifices, just to be with Jesus all that time. So I think that's one of the reasons why you see these discrepancies in Luke's Gospel and and Matthew. So keep that in mind next time you read those two passages. Let's turn now to the Sermon on the Mount as reported by St. Matthew. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. So as we see, St. Matthew tells us about Jesus speaking specifically to his disciples there. And a number of questions come up in our minds when we hear these Beatitudes, or at least came up in my mind. Here are a number of questions that I thought of, and I'll try to answer each of these questions in our talk tonight. And if I can't get to it tonight, then starting tomorrow as well. First, what is a Beatitude? How many Beatitudes are there? And are there others found in scripture? Is Jesus talking about happiness in this life or in the next? Is it enough to keep one beatitude? Or do we have to abide by all of them to be happy? Is there some determinate order among these eight beatitudes? Finally, why do so many of the beatitudes speak about painful experiences like poverty and sadness, hunger and persecution? And how are these reconcilable with being perfectly happy? First, what is a beatitude? A beatitude is a brief instruction from our Lord in poetic form, which teaches us how to find lasting and divine happiness. Okay. I'll say that again. A brief instruction from our Lord in poetic form, which teaches us how to find lasting and divine happiness. Each beatitude has a first part, which is a condition for the reward, and a second part, which is the reward itself, the reason for merit, and then the thing that you get as a reward. So, a friend of mine once observed that it's interesting that Christ thought it was worthwhile to give his instruction in poetic form. It has kind of a sing-songy element, doesn't it? I remember when I first, um, I, I studied in Rome for five years, and when I first got there, of course, I didn't know any Italian. I had to learn it while I, when I got there. But I remember one time hearing the Beatitudes read uh, at mass, as before I knew Italian well, and I immediately knew it was the Beatitudes, right? even just if it's in a foreign language doesn't matter what language you know that's the Beatitudes so it's interesting right there's this poetic sing-songy element to the Beatitudes and I think that's important because we tend to remember things better when there's some poetic and rhythmic element to it you you guys remember Schoolhouse Rock? Some of you are old enough to remember Schoolhouse Rock. I can still sing from memory, the preamble of constitution because of Schoolhouse Rock. As a little kid, you know. So things like that stick in your memory. And the idea is that what sticks in your memory can also be a principle of your actions going forward. Our Lord wanted the Beatitudes to be constantly in our minds, constantly. So are there Beatitudes found in other places in scripture? In fact, yes. I mentioned that uh, that same word was found about 50 times in each the Old and the New Testament. So why are we say there's only these eight Beatitudes? Well, St. Thomas Aquinas asked that very question and he, um, he points out that all the other Beatitudes found in scripture, in some way reduced back to one of the eight listed by Matthew, Here's what he says. It's necessary that all of the Beatitudes pronounced elsewhere in scripture be reduced to these eight, either with regard to the merit or with regard to the reward. For it is necessary that all of them pertain in some way, either to the active or the contemplative life. Therefore, when it is said, blessed is a man who is corrected by the Lord, This pertains to the beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. But when it is said, blessed is a man who does not follow the counsel of the impious, this pertains to purity of heart. And where it is said, blessed is a man who finds wisdom, this pertains to the reward of the seventh beatitude. And the same is clear about all the other beatitudes which one might bring forth. So, all the beatitudes are found in summary form, this one place in matthew st thomas goes on to say that the beatitudes are the activities flowing from the gifts of the holy spirit so there's a beatitude for every gift Um, the eighth beatitude is a special case we'll talk about that it's in some way a summary of the other seven but the first seven beatitudes correspond to the seven gifts of the holy spirit in order And, um, and that's a really beautiful thing too, to, to contemplate and to meditate on which gift corresponds to which beatitude. I'll do that in the talks uh, tomorrow and on Tuesday. So is Jesus talking about happiness in this life or in the next? <clears throat> Most of the beatitudes give a future tense for the reward. right? Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. But two of the Beatitudes, the first and the last, speak in the present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, and again, theirs is the kingdom of God. So the very fact that Jesus speaks in both the present and the future tense indicates that the Beatitudes have an element to them that's both present and future. And the key to understanding how this works is the role that the theological virtue of hope plays in the Christian life. Hope has a very remarkable ability. Hope has the ability to bring future joy into the present. It's really true. I will give you two very simple examples. Out in California recently, you probably read about it with some envy, there was a lottery that was over a billion dollars. Did you hear about that? The More than a billion dollar lottery out in California. And I imagine there was someone somewhere who had bought their ticket, and just thought, well, I'll put in my lucky numbers, and they went home and watched the TV, and lo and behold, number by number, each one of them came up until the last number was read. And at that moment, whoever that person was who had the billion and something dollar ticket, I'm sure they jumped up in the air, they ran around the house, they put their hands on their head. They were probably screaming for joy. Hmm? And they didn't have one red cent. What they did have was a little piece of paper and the promise of the state of California. And that's it, the word of the state of California. But that was enough to bring a billion dollars in the future into their heart in the present. Just that little hope, huh? Or to take another example, maybe more common for us. Let's say that there is a young woman who's having a really difficult day at work. Everything's been going wrong for her. It's a bad hair day. Everything's going wrong. And she comes home and her boyfriend calls her and says, hey, let's go out to dinner tonight. So fine, we go out to dinner right in the middle of the dinner, lo and behold, he drops to one knee, produces a ring, he says, will you marry me? In that moment, all of her sorrows are banished. Her heart is filled with joy. In fact, some women report that the day they were engaged was more enjoyable as far as just the, the thrill of the joy than the day they got married. Isn't that amazing? That engaged woman, that moment she's crying and hugging her husband. The marriage might be a year or more off, but she's got hope in the promise of a young man. So now let me ask you, brothers and sisters, what do you think is better, a billion dollars or eternal life? And whose promise should we hope in more the state of California a fickle young man or God if we truly have the hope that we should and we believe in the reward that is coming to us as Christians our hearts should constantly be filled with joy constantly be on fire with joy that tells us how weak our hope is sometimes doesn't it We're less excited than the guy who won the lottery or the girl who got engaged. When the reward for us is so much greater and the promise is so much more certain. I remember recently this last year as I was offering mass, just a private mass in the crypt of our Abbey church. God made me aware of a sin that I had been guilty of for many years without even being aware of it. And the sin was this. How is it that when I pronounce the words of consecration over the host, over the wine, and then in my possession are the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very substance of God, which I will receive into myself, I often say that the Eucharist is on earth what the beatific vision is in heaven because it's the same divine substance that's given to us in both. How is it that my heart is not filled with as much joy as it can hold at that moment? Why do I have such little joy in my heart at that moment and when I receive the Eucharist? I know there's this whole thing about the Lumen gloriae and having this special help in heaven. But whatever joy I was experiencing was nowhere close to what God deserved and what I was capable of if my heart were truly, truly on fire with love for the Lord, huh? So it convicted me about the weakness of my hope. And I keep on praying and trying. I don't know if I'm any better. I keep trying and praying to have that stronger hope so that I'll have that greater joy whenever I offer the holy sacrifice or the mass. So, it is important, however, when we hope, that we hope in the Lord and not in this life. I like to tell a simple little parable that explains that. Let us say that each one here had someone who was the dearest friend of their heart. Someone, when you were together, you were always happy, filled with joy. When you were apart, it always made you sad. And let's say God gave you a choice. He said, well, either you can be together with your friend for some weeks or months or even years, but after that time, you will always and forever be separated. That's choice A. Or choice B. You'll have to be separated from your friend for some weeks, or months, or even years. But after that time, you will always and forever be together. Which would you choose? I think you know, don't you? Everyone would choose the second option. Because if they chose the first, even the time they were together with their friend would be seasoned with bitterness. Because of a sense of impending loss, we're eventually going to have to be parted. But if they chose the second option, even the time they were apart from their loved one would be seasoned with joy because of the hope and expectation of an eternal reunion. The world says, the farther you are from birth, the sadder you should be. Look how your skin becomes, your hair, and you're getting older. They're not as beautiful as they used to be. But the Christian says, the closer you are to death, the happier you should become. You should be crossing off the days. It's like waiting for Christmas. Because only at death are we reunited with the one we love so much, our Lord Jesus, with all the saints and angels in heaven. And when I was a teenager, I remember reading a poem. It was a poem that a little nun used to recite while she did her knitting in a little rocking chair, a little old nun. And she used to say this, One day more of work for Jesus, one day less of life for me. But heaven is nearer and Christ is dearer than yesterday to me. Isn't that beautiful? Very much reflects the, the Christian soul, the hope that should exist in the Christian soul each day getting closer to our beloved. Now, I mentioned that two of the Beatitudes were in the present tense as well. So I wanna talk about that very briefly. Those two Beatitudes have the same reward, or at least in name, the same reward. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so there's a special reason why that reward is promised in the present. And the reason is because that the kingdom of heaven is already among us in some way. Jesus is very explicit. He says, the kingdom of God is within you, right? The kingdom of God is among you, even now. It's already become. Right? Jesus makes this very explicit in regard to the poor in spirit when he says this. There is no man who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive manifold more in this time and then in the age to come eternal life. As if to say already that joy will be beginning even in this life. And I've experienced that as a vowed religious. I took about poverty, chastity, and obedience. I gave up those things huh, that Jesus speaks of in that passage I just read. And already I experience the joy of having so many people being so intimately involved in so many families, so many spiritual children, sons and daughters, who I care for and who care for me. It's a very beautiful thing to live that way. The Beatitudes is a call to religious life for those young people who have not yet made up their mind about that. The Beatitudes are above all an invitation to be without fear. You can be happy without anything but God. It was a lesson that I was trying to preach in this morning's homily. Eve was faced with that choice. Is it possible to be happy without God? The Beatitudes tell us conversely, it's only possible to be happy only with God. So that call to religious life, if there's a young man, a young woman here, who hears the voice of God in their heart, I simply say, don't be afraid. I think I would have been a very happy married man. I, by the time I joined religious life, I really, really wanted to have a big family. I always thought of the ideal family being like a dozen kids, you know. I love that idea. And yet, out of faith, I gave that up for Jesus. And while I know I would have been very happy as a husband and father, I am certain I'm happier as a priest than I would have been as a husband or a father. So, just an invitation. Don't be afraid if you hear that tug in your heart. Now, is it enough to keep one beatitude, or do we have to abide by all of them to be happy? It's a fair question. I mean, after all, it says stuff like, blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God, right? If I'm just pure of heart, shouldn't that be enough? Right? I'm pure of heart, therefore I'm gonna see God. What else do I need, right? Heck with the other Beatitudes. That poverty's for the birds, right? <laughs> but think about it. Is it really possible to be pure of heart if at the same time you love money, or you love pleasure, or you love power? Is someone who's willing to forsake God for the sake of money really pure of heart? I think we know what the answer is. No, no. And therefore, to keep one beatitude is to keep all the beatitudes. Because ultimately it's the same thing promised in all the beatitudes, but just under a different aspect. God is, so to speak, too large to be described in one reward. He's described in many ways. So the fact is that just like the commandments and the virtues, to do any one of them well is to do all of them, and to break any one of them involves breaking all of them. Here's what St. James says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of all of it. For he who said "Do do not commit adultery also said do not kill. If you do not commit adultery but you do kill, you have become a transgressor of the law, the whole law. So the commandments, the virtues, they form a kind of a unity, because there's one lawgiver, there's one object of the Lord and the Beatitudes and so forth. You know, um, in modern fiction and movies and things like that, They often try to deceive the public by separating out in fiction what can't be separated in reality. If you go to watch movies about superheroes, you find out they're just, they're courageous, they're prudent, and then you find out they're fornicators. Hmm. Yeah, you can't really be that way, not in reality. A person who's willing to commit adultery is not a just man. Right? It's not a just man. But they try to convince people of that by portraying these things in the movies. Yeah, you can separate things out in the movies, but not in reality. And it's that way with the Beatitudes. So keeping one is keeping all. Is there some reason for the order of these eight Beatitudes? Jesus is God's eternal wisdom. So As it says in the book of Wisdom, Wisdom orders from end to end mightily and orders all things sweetly. So Jesus must have a reason for the order of these Beatitudes. So I will talk about that as far as a couple of possible orders that are here. Let's look at the condition or the reason for merit in each Beatitude. The poor in spirit, those who mourn the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. What we find is that the ones that come earlier seem to concern virtues that govern our own body and private goods. And as you go farther and farther down the list, it seems to deal more with common goods. So if you look at the first six beati- first seven Beatitudes, they seem to be divided into about three different parts. First, you've got the poor in spirit. Those are people who are not attached to wealth, right? Money, physical goods. Then you have those who are mourning. They're not attached to bodily pleasure or emotional satisfaction. And then those who are meek. They're not dominated by anger or the desire for power. You see that? So all of those are goods pertaining to our own private good. Our wealth, our emotions, whether they be emotions for pleasant things or emotions to dominate. So those first three Beatitudes seem to be about our private goods. But then the next two seem to be about common goods Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, justice, righteousness is something achieved in the whole community. They desire the common good of others, and they work for that common good, trying to hopefully bring about justice. And they hunger and thirst for it. It's very concrete. And then the merciful go even beyond that. Just as mercy goes beyond justice, Justice seeks what's equal, but mercy goes even beyond what's equal and even gives what's unfair out of love and mercy. So there you have the next two Beatitudes referring to the common good of our neighbor and how we establish justice and mercy among our neighbors and exercise those things. And Then finally, the next two, the pure in heart and the peacemakers, seem to refer to our relationship to God. The pure of heart are those who are fixed wholeheartedly on God. And the peacemakers, says St. Thomas, are those who so effectively are attached to God. They even establish the conditions for others to contemplate God and to be pure of heart. So they establish peace the conditions for the contemplation of God among all of God's people. So we see that movement from the goods of ourselves, the goods of our neighbor, and the goods of God. And then we find the last beatitude, that eighth beatitude, those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Saint Thomas says that this last beatitude indicates a kind of firmness and immovability in practicing the previous seven. For if someone is persecuted even and they are not moved from their intention to practice the Christian faith, that shows that they are solidly rooted. As St. Paul says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will anguish or distress, persecution or famine, or nakedness or peril or the sword? No, in all of these, we conquer overwhelmingly through him who loved us. So that is one account of the reason for the order of the Beatitudes. But there's another way we can see an order among the Beatitudes. And that is, if we look at the life of Christ, the Beatitudes seems to be followed exactly throughout Christ's life. He was born poor, he died persecuted. And as we look at each of the other Beatitudes, especially as he undergoes his passion, we see in temporal order, Jesus practices all of these Beatitudes. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' sorrow, he says, My soul is sorrowful, even unto death. Blessed is he who mourns. As he was brought before the unjust judges, such as Caiaphas, Herod, Pontius Pilate, he remained silent and meek. Though he was harshly treated, he submitted and opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, or a sheep before the shearers. He was silent and opened not his mouth, says St. Peter. Blessed are those who are meek. On the cross, He thirsted. He said, I thirst. And he was merciful as well, for from the cross he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Throughout the entire time of his passion, Jesus remained pure in heart, never becoming bitter or returning insult for insult. Rather, says St. Peter, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he returned no insult. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Instead, he handed himself over to the one who judges justly. And finally, by his death, he made peace between heaven and earth, between Jew and Gentile. As St. Paul says, making peace through the blood of his cross. So we find the Beatitudes lived by Jesus at every stage in his life, especially in the midst of his passion. So now perhaps to the ultimate question. Why do so many of the Beatitudes speak about painful experiences like poverty and sadness, hunger and persecution? And how are these reconcilable with being perfectly happy, right? No one imagines heaven as a place where everyone is poor, sad, hungry, thirsty, and persecuted. So if Jesus is trying to paint a picture of perfect happiness, he doesn't seem to be doing a very good job. So how do we explain this? In fact, some of the things Jesus says seem to be the very antithesis of happiness, right? To begin, Jesus needs to speak in very stark terms. We have false views about happiness. Like I said, the human heart is counterintuitive. We think, in spite of all of our lip service, that happiness consists in being wealthy, powerful, having pleasure at the emotional and physical level, and getting everything we want our way. That's how we think. But Jesus has to dispel these false views of happiness. The Catholic novelist and short story writer, Flannery O'Connor, once gave an explanation for why so many of her short stories and novels had such grotesque and violent elements. I I remember reading Flannery O'Connor when I was in high school and I just thought, she's weird. I did, I just this is weird stuff, I don't know what this is. So I didn't care for it too much, and when I got older, I started to understand what was going on, and now she's one of my very favorite authors, you know. But here's what she said, it was a really beautiful, insightful thing. She said, when you can assume your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax and use more normal means of talking to it. But when you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the heart of hearing, you shout. And for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. It's a profound insight. Jesus knew that we are practically deaf and almost blind to moral realities. And so he had to shout and to startle us. Jesus knew that if he described happiness in the terms that we could possibly interpret that would allow us to cling to our love for this world, we would have twisted his words until we finally convinced ourselves that he was saying what we wanted him to say. That's true. Imagine if Jesus had said this, blessed are those who, though wealthy, have a rightly ordered love of wealth. Imagine if Jesus said that. You know what Jesus actually did say? He said, It's harder to enter heaven if you're wealthy than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. I don't know exactly what that means, but when I think of a camel passing through the eye of a needle, I think food processor. <laughs> it's a painful experience. And even though Jesus said that, I know very few Catholics that want to give up their wealth." That's the truth, brothers and sisters. There's always some reason why it's okay to stay wealthy, and not only stay wealthy, get wealthier. Imagine if Jesus had said that about any other thing. It is harder for someone who is blank to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. You would think that every Christian would stay away from that like it was poison. But if it's money that fills in that blank, all the excuses come out, huh? So you can imagine, granted that Jesus already has warned us so much about the dangers of wealth. And I'm not saying that people who are wealthy go to hell, but I am saying it's really hard to get to heaven when you're wealthy. And yet, even though Jesus said that, so few people seek to live a life of authentic poverty. If Jesus had said, blessed are those who have a rightly ordered desire for wealth, would there be one man or woman who took a vow of poverty in the whole world? I don't think so. So Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And he caught a few fish. (laughs) We got those sisters over there. (laughs) He caught a few fish. So that's one thing. Another thing is that our human nature has been wounded deeply by original sin. And one of the effects of that wound is that we see good as evil evil as good. And not only that, but we see lesser goods as if they were greater goods, and greater goods as if they were lesser goods. And I will give you a very simple example. Take an ordinary three-year-old and give them a choice. Would you prefer this bowl of ice cream or a fully paid for college education? they will choose the bowl of ice cream every single time, won't they? It's because they're three years old. They don't know anything about a college education, they know something about ice cream. But brothers and sisters, we're all three years old when it comes to the goods of heaven. We don't know anything about the things of heaven, Jesus does. So if you were a father, and you were trying desperately to get your three-year-old to pick the education, the college education. Wouldn't you portray the ice cream just as badly as you possibly could? (laughs) Would you like this bowl of ice cream which is poisoned and is mixed with poop? (laughs) Or college education? Oh, yeah, take the college education, good choice. That's what Jesus is trying to do with the Beatitudes. He's trying to startle us, make us realize that we love the lesser things more and we should love the greater things more. Hmm? When I was a kid, I remember I noticed that I would look to the windowsill and I would see on the windowsill that the flies would go there and die, you know. So I asked my mother, I said, Mom, why do the flies go to the windowsill to die? I thought it was like the elephant graveyard, you know, they know it's time to die, let's go to the windowsill, right? And. and she explained to me, no, honey, the flies die on the windowsill because they're trying to get out through the glass. They see the light out there and they want to go there, but they're not smart enough. So you just keep on bumping their head against the glass till they starve to death. And I said, that's so sad. Why don't they just fly behind them through the open door there? <laughs> and she said, it's because it's, it's dark that way. They can't see it, their instinct just tells them, always go towards what they can see. And that was an apt metaphor for how we experience our search for happiness. If we follow our instincts, ruined as they are by original sin, we'll be no better than those flies bumping up against the window, trying to find happiness and wealth and pleasure and emotional satisfaction and power and all the esteem of men, fame. But the only way to get to happiness is to turn around and follow Jesus through the darkness, through the poverty, through the mourning for our sins, through the persecution, through the hunger, through the thirst. Because only in that way will we be able to find true life in Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. St. Joseph, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you all. I think tomorrow's conferences, tomorrow and Tuesday will be a little bit shorter, um, but I'll, t- I'll take up some of the individual Beatitudes in particular, and I'll talk about each one of them. Um, I don't know that I'll get to all of them, but I'll, I'll talk about a lot of them over the next two days.